0: You're back at the Sacred Birth Circle. Today's episode is one of my favorites because we are going deep into the conversation of stillbirth prevention, what more we can do, and also what providers can be doing to help save babies in this country. I hope you enjoy this episode and share it with everyone you know on social media. Welcome to the Sacred Birth Circle. I'm Anna Vick. I am so happy to be with you here today with a guest that I think everyone pretty much knows in my circle at least, but if you are not familiar with Dr. Florescu, I'm gonna give her an opportunity to go ahead and introduce herself, and then we'll get into a conversation that I think will be very informative for anybody who's trying to conceive or pregnant currently or hoping to be in the future. If you are a family member, if you're a provider, please listen very carefully. I think this will help us to improve outcomes for all families. Hi, Heather, why don't you give us a little background about who you are?
1: Hi, so I am Heather Florescu. I am a ob in Rochester, New York, um, and I've always been very devoted to the lost community locally and In June of 19, I went to the STAR Legacy Summit and learned for the first time that stillbirth actually may be preventable, and the there's nothing that could have been done was completely untrue, and I've basically been on a grassroots um, campaign to change how we take care of educating patients about fetal movement and talking about stillbirth and hoping that we can reduce our stagnant stillbirth rate. So when you went to that conference, how
0: many years have you been practicing?
1: Um, so I graduated from medical school in 2004. Um, so when I went 15 years, you know, after becoming a doctor and finished my residency in 2008. So about 11 years into my attending hood.
0: Wow. So that's really interesting because you just mentioned that you thought in a way you couldn't
1: really prevent stillbirth up until that point. That's been a narrative for so long. And, and you know, it's kind of... Odd that I didn't think that either, you know, because it's so obvious that so many of these stillbirths, a term can be prevented because we saw patients who were seen the day before and then the next, and got sent home and the next day their baby had died. And to say that a patient who presents at 39 weeks for decreased movement has a normal NS3 and ultrasound and then comes back the next day and her baby has died, to say that that's not preventable makes absolutely no logical sense. So
0: after the conference, I remember you sharing this before, but you came back to your practice and you were so excited, like you're going to tell all these people we can prevent silver. We're all going to do this. Everyone, we're going to change what we do here. And what was the feedback that you got from the other providers?
1: Oh, from, I mean, from my practice, it was great. I think everybody realized that it was made sense and we've been incorporating it for three years. Um, I expected people to have the kind of thunderbolt moment that we were doing things wrong, and all of a sudden everybody's going to do things right, and it wasn't that way. Um, I do feel like I have been able to change a lot of the community. I think Rochester Regional Health, which is another part of, has done a ton of things Um that have changed their quality. And I'm very proud of what we've done at the hospital I deliver at at Highland Hospital, because before I started making efforts, people who came in for decreased movement really just received an NST and were sent home. Um, And now we've turned it into a full seen by the resident, seen by the provider visit. And I think that alone is such a huge improvement in quality because it says to the patient that you're presenting with decreased field movement was just as important as if you presented with a headache or for a labor check, which before it kind of seemed like an afterthought. And I know I've said, I love that when my residents call about a patient presenting for this concern, they've learned to say, And she was reassured by the evaluation, which is just music to my ears that they're just naturally asking that. I don't think they even know that they're naturally asking it because you have to remember the cycle of a resident is only four years. And I've been pushing this for three. So I'm starting to see residents who are just as part of their lingo and they don't even know that it was ever any different. So, and that's exactly what we want.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I love that you're actually starting with students too, because I think that there are definitely people who are currently practicing that need to hear this, but at least we know, you know, the next generation will hopefully be better at it. Um, What do you think that patients should do if they notice a change in fetal movement? Because I do think the other side of the coin is that we aren't being listened to by all our providers. Mm -hmm. And how do we get more power to the family to advocate and really push to get the care they need at that point?
1: So I think a really important thing is, and I I know this is hard for families to hear, but I have seen many losses from bad advice from families. So please, please, please families, if you're out there listening, if a loved one expresses concern about their baby, they are not being overly anxious. They do not need to be reassured by you that this is normal. They need to be told to call their providers. And this is not coming from their partners. This is really coming from the older members of their family who think they know exactly that baby is sleeping and it is so detrimental. Please don't bring them a Doppler. Please don't tell them this is normal. Please don't tell them they're being overly anxious. They need to call the office. And from the standpoint of if they call the office, if you're not feeling like you're being heard, just simply say, I am not comfortable. I want to come into the hospital for evaluation. I think if you use those words, I want to believe that 99.9% of providers are going to listen to that you just have to say, I am not comfortable I am coming in to be evaluated. And those are words that if you're in I, I said in my speech at the push that of patients who come in with this concern are going to be reassured because 40% of people will have this concern. And obviously, 40% of people, their baby is not going to have something terrible happen. If you're in that 0.1% that the evaluation you get is not enough and you're not reassured, it is okay to say, I get what you're saying. My NST is showing the right things. My ultrasound is normal, but something is wrong. And just, I know that's putting a lot of power on you, but unfortunately that's kind of where we're at right now, that it's okay to advocate for yourself. Um, We talk in our practice all the time about trusting your instincts and that sometimes, unfortunately, you need to kind of do a little knock, knock, knock. Do you hear me? I'm not reassured.
0: Yeah, I'm actually seeing in our chat here that we're live on Facebook, um, other people who are saying that sadly they were reassured by family members. So you know, and that is hard because it doesn't matter if it's your first or second baby. I'll say that, but especially if it's your first child and you don't know what's normal for a pregnancy and then people start to tell you, oh, it's fine. My baby, you know, was that way. And, you know, every baby slows down at the end and there's not enough room. And you might even get that from your own provider if you call in mm-hmm. and you're concerned. So it is difficult for a, a mother who is pregnant for the first time, even their second time. And you're kind of like confused, like, what should I do? I think number one, like you said, is just go in and tell them you're feeling something's wrong, something's different. And don't worry about trying to decide if it's like urgent enough, you know, like, I think that's the thing. We don't want to bother. We don't want to come in too much. Maybe it's an insurance factor. We don't know if it's going to be covered every time you come in too much. Um, is yeah. that the thing, like, is it always covered by insurance, really, if you just come in before yes, treatment?
1: it should be? Yeah. So the, you know, with the hospital, of course, you may have deductible fees for coming in. Um, if let's say you call during the daytime. So in my practice, if you call us during the daytime, um, we will bring you in. We don't charge you an office visit for that. The non-stress test and the ultrasound, obviously Everybody has different insurances, but we don't use the code normal pregnancy. We're using the code for decreased fetal movement, which insurance companies reimburse for. So, um, obviously, you know we don't ever want you to be deterred by the cost of this. I don't think we've had any issues in the three years I've been doing this because we're not coding this. This is not a normal pregnancy by definition. It is has a concern, and we're coding based on that um, non stress test. You know, are just one part of the evaluation and ultrasound. But one of the, I think, the most important things that we do in our practice is we say, and I say it so many times to patients, I sound like a broken record. Trust your instincts, and you're never bothering us. I can't tell you how important that is. Um, about a year ago, I had a patient who called a lot for things, and she called about a concern that was, I'm not going to say, obviously for HIPAA reasons, but a kind of funny, cute concern, but. We always call, and I called her back and said, and she goes, I'm so sorry to bother you. And I said, you are never, ever bothering us. You don't worry about this. We're here for you. The next day, she called with the no fetal movement, and we found her baby was small. We induced her, and she had a beautiful, healthy baby. So we never, ever want our patients to think, oh, my gosh, I can't call them about this because... That's what we're here for, you know. My best friend, who you had the honor of meeting, um, is a dermatologist, and I always tell people I would have gotten into dermatology if I didn't want to get woken up in the middle of the night and I didn't want to work weekends. I went into this because I love it, and my partners love it, and the vast majority of your providers love what they do, and we all want the healthy outcome. So please, 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 know you're never bothering. We should not have gone into this field if. We are feeling bothered because we know we're going to be up all night, every night, potentially. And that's what we're here for.
0: Right. And I think a lot of people in the chat are agreeing that that's why you hire them. You know, they're working for you. This is a service business, you know. So if you feel like you need this additional check for whatever reason, even if it's just peace of mind, I think that it's worth it to go in there. And, you know, having lost the baby myself, I will say I would have paid any amount of money you know, and I think you think that after, of course, like, who cares, you know, if it costs me a little extra, yeah. just to make sure my baby's okay. And also, you know, at the end of the day, when you have a baby, you usually meet your cap, like you go and you, there's a lot of money, right. Yes. Being fit for this, so all that will just, you know, go un, into the full payment of the birth, basically.
1: Yeah, for my own triplet pregnancy, I remember very clearly I had $1,000 and $1,025 $1, 025 in copays from all my non stress tests and ultrasounds. And of course, I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, it was what I needed to get through that. So.
0: And the second thing we want to say is don't go to Dr. Google because I do see that in the chat as well. A lot of people are saying, yep. Sadly, you know, because we don't get the conversation with our doctor always, we don't know what to do and it's the middle of the night and we're Googling and we're concerned and then we're finding all this misinformation. Um, I actually did that as well when my son was passing and I didn't know what was happening. And so I saw, oh yeah, do the drink ice cold water and juice and do some kick counting for two hours. And if you get the 10 kicks, you're fine. And all this I'm saying with the tone because it's incorrect but I didn't know better. I was never informed by my provider. We never had this conversation. So by the time, you know, I did my little kick count, I called the ER and they also told me, you know, have a meal, do two more hours of kick counting. I was like, this doesn't seem right. And I had like all the bells and whistles going off. Like my whole body was reacting. Like I was panicked. So I just got ready quickly, went over to the ER and got checked, but it was too late. He was already gotten enough damage from cord compressions that he didn't survive the c-section but so I will say that googling is definitely not the way to go but we are working on that and actually Dr. Florsky and I and other doctors and our groups that we're working with Push for Empowered Pregnancy and Count the Kicks and um, Kicks Count UK we're kind of banding together as um, just a big you know organization trying to rid the internet of misinformation so we're coming okay. up with a cons- consensus statement for fetal movement that will kind of hopefully once we go to every big account especially like what to expect when you're expecting anything that would come up for you in the middle of the night hopefully that will clear that out for you but in the meantime what do you think about googling (laughs) advice I think it's
1: the worst thing you could possibly do you know it's it it just you have to remember the most liked thing goes to the top so you don't get necessarily the most scientifically based um you know, responses to it. Again, Googling is very similar to talking to your family members. Um, You, I always say this to my patients, you would never Google how to do an ACL repair or how to remove a gallbladder. You shouldn't be Googling how to do obstetrics. And I, it's not that you can't learn about birth and you can learn about pregnancy online but just think about would you ever ever ask you tell your orthopedic surgeon this is what i found on google this is how i want you to do my acl repair so please trust us we really have so much education as your midwives and your doctors and we want and we need to change that narrative out there because unfortunately as I said, it's some, a lot of it is on the medical community. We need to change that. But so much of it is on family members and friends who are well-meaning and Google that is well-meaning that is creating so much of this. And obviously this needs to add the please don't use a home Doppler. Um, There are 500 page books about fetal monitoring, and there are babies that will be in incredible distress with a heartbeat. So please, 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 hearing your baby's heartbeat is not reassuring enough. You need to get evaluated for longer term management.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And another person commenting is sharing that she was reassured. She actually had a high risk pregnancy. I know her story quite well um, that she was under so much care and reassurance that she really didn't understand the change in fetal movement could be stillbirth and you know, by the time she was back into her next appointment, it was too late because, you know, mm-hmm. so she's just saying, make sure you go in, don't wait for the appointment the next day. Yes.
1: hundred you- percent. I can't tell you how many patients, and before I started doing this, I don't see it as much anymore, which shows you how change makes a difference that people waited 24 hours. And thank goodness. I, you know, we've been lucky, but I had a patient probably about five or six years ago. I was I was dying inside before I went in because she said she hadn't felt the baby in 24 hours. So it really, and truly it's don't wait to your appointment. You're never bothering us. I feel like that should be a hashtag that we use because it really is so important. And to know that, as I said, we want the best outcomes too. It's, and we want to have healthy mom, healthy baby every single solitary time and we're a team and you have every right to use us as your teammates.
0: So another question is, what do you think about wild movements, because we do talk about reduced movement, but a lot of pa- parents who had um, loss, remember kind of like a frantic situation prior to the loss, and typically in cord losses I'll say a lot of these stories come from so
1: yeah. I've also yeah. Seen that. Yeah, I mean, we talk about it, but I think it's more about the mindfulness of getting to know your baby and calling regardless of the concerns. I would say in the three years we've been doing this, I probably had a half dozen, maybe people come in for that concern. So it does not seem to be the common concern. But it is certainly important. It's a change, right? So we're not. Is it, most of the time the change could be for the decrease, but the changes for a concerning increase. Especially those when they've done these studies, the increase is a negative thing. So it's not something that you're filming your baby with your to watch the movements and you're laughing as it's happening it is a concerning internal feeling um and that's kind of what these patients are presenting with is that kind of something it doesn't feel good it's not a like oh my god look at the baby's limbs moving and everybody's laughing who's watching it it is a i don't know why my baby is doing this kind of feeling Mm
0: -hmm. yeah dr hueso mentioned it's kind of like um They're having a stroke, almost like a spasm or something. It's not very normal behavior, you know? So yes, feel anything different. We do want to just say altered movement is important. Yeah,
1: altered movement. Yep. The other thing that's incredibly important is we know that when when they've done retrospective studies asking people, what time do you think your baby died? Many will say it's between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. So even if the next day comes around and you're like, my baby was not moving at night, babies should be moving at night. That is supposed to be their most active time. So please, 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 if you are, especially if you're a term and you're noticing decreased movement, I will tell you when I've seen the patients come in with decreased movement overnight, they're often the ones who are the least reassured by the evaluation we did because there's something about that decreased nighttime movement that we know is a risk. So, you know, don't, even if it goes back to normal, still say, you know what, last night my baby wasn't moving, give a call so we can evaluate.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, the nighttime thing, because I've done a lot of research and been to all these conferences about stillbirth, and they discuss it a lot. And I'm thinking, well, for many reasons, like you yourself probably don't want to go in the middle of the night to the ER and wake up mm-hmm. the family, mm-hmm. wake up your spouse and bring your yeah. kids out of bed, you know so you're just like well is it is it bad enough like can i wait till the morning you know you have no clue really but you just kind of yeah. try to reason that it's not that urgent you know and nobody telling you about it is the other part like i didn't know about stillbirth i didn't know a healthy baby could just die out of nowhere so for me, it was more like just an internal intuition, and that kind of like mm-hmm. it just was a red flag, and my whole body was reacting, and I was like, "He is just limp. Like I need to get in there." But I didn't think I was really going in to save him. I just thought like something's up, you know, and it's kind of weird.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so it does matter, I think, to have a conversation with patients about stillbirth. Like this is a risk for anybody in any pregnancy, sadly. And you yeah. know, we are seeing statistically it's more likely for you know low risk parent because probably we don't have the same level of care, and we aren't yeah. talked to about kick counting and what we need to be doing to prevent stillbirth at all. Um, yeah. The other thing too about nighttime, I know Dr. Collins' research shows a lot about cord issues happening at night. I don't know if it's because the cord gets compressed in certain sleeping positions but you know there's so many reasons and so yeah definitely listen to yourself and if you feel anything changing at night go in and it is interesting you mentioned about sleeping patterns of the baby because I I get that kind of kickback from parents when I post about it that are not lost parents that say oh no babies sleep sometimes you're just freaking out other parents for no reason well how long would the baby normally sleep I mean
1: I mean, so when we do a non-stress test, we give them 20 minutes that we, you know, anywhere between 20 minutes and 40 minutes, you could see a sleep type pattern on a non-stress test, but it really shouldn't be longer than that. Um, It really should be something that no baby sleeps internally for hours. Um, And so, of course, if you think your baby 20, 30 minutes... Um, I love the, I've seen a couple of people say, I just push my baby around and it moves. That is totally reassuring. So if you touch your baby and you get a response back and that reassures you, that's very reassuring to me too. I'll have patients who come in and like, you know, I'm a little worried about my fetal movement, um, at an appointment, but not like really worried and I'll go and I'll do my Leopold and the baby starts going, we start seeing the limbs and the baby moves. We have excellent evidence that that is incredibly reassuring. That's not to say you shouldn't call, but if you're at two in the morning and you push the baby around, the baby starts moving again, that's always a reassuring sign, but it's always okay to run it by us. Um, I've seen many times stillbirth where I have started to think through this and people have said the best night of sleep they had was the night that their baby died. So, you know, not sleeping well at the end has been shown to be when they've looked at the sleeps, you know, patterns, you're not supposed to sleep great at the end. It doesn't mean if you got a good night's sleep, something's wrong with your baby, of course. But um, in retrospect, sometimes it's a good night's sleep because the baby is not keeping you awake and moving and doing all the, those things. So
0: no, I've heard that as well. And I think like you have to drink a lot of fluids in pregnancy. And so at the end, like I was just chugging a lot, you know, so you're obviously kind of annoyed. You're like, oh, it's gonna wake me up again. But that's actually not bad. Because every time you wake up, the baby gets to readjust. And if there was a cord compression or anything happening, luckily, you know, it kind of all works itself out. So I think that's just nature's way of protecting your baby. You know, Uh, we do have a good question about hiccups do you see any connection with hiccups and stillbirth or are they concerning at all to you
1: Um, so that that sorry that is a great example where google does you wrong because there is people have had these thoughts about hiccups and that their baby is struggling or something but they've actually the newer evidence shows that it's actually reductive in risk of stillbirth so that Hiccups are actually reassuring. Um, the only time you would worry about the hiccups is if all your baby is doing hiccupping and you have decreased movement, but again, that's decreased movement. So um, hiccups don't count as movements, but if your baby is moving and hiccuping, that is totally okay. And it's actually been shown to have less risk of stillbirth. So that's where Google doesn't help. Again, people Google the hiccups, it says, oh, my baby's struggling or my baby's having seizures or numerous other things. And that goes to the top, and that's what you see when you Google, and you miss the excellent newer evidence that it's actually not a concern.
0: Right. Well, what I had read actually is like it's showing signs of maturity of lungs, I Mm -hmm. guess. And so, I mean, Dr. Collins also speaks about it, and he says it is, there's a correlation with cord accident babies, but as far as like my pregnancies, I'll just say my last one, especially because I remember it so well, my rainbow baby, he hiccup all the time and I was always like, oh no, like this was so scary, right? So I would yeah. freak out. But then I, I get what you're saying. Like It's not just that because even if the cord was having problems, then you would see a decrease of fetal movement as well. So try to pay attention to those movements more so. And, you know, then you can kind of get to the point where you're like, okay, there's something going on here. You know, not so much that your baby's hiccuping because that can also be a healthy thing. Right.
1: Yeah. The other thing that's really important is that fetal movement should be independent of your movements. So I've seen lost moms who thought their babies were moving when they clearly weren't because they would switch positions and the baby would kind of move with them. Um, So it should always be independent of you. Um, so hopefully that makes sense to any pregnant people out there.
0: That does make sense because I do know some lost moms talk about it. Like, well, my baby felt like they were still moving, but they were really just kind of swishing around in the fluid Mm -hmm. and they couldn't really get the point that it's also about not just like, I guess the amount of movement, but the strength. Mm -hmm. And So do you want to discuss that a little bit about how you tell parents to track movement?
1: I I really go based on the card. Um, So I give them a card and I kind of go through that every single baby is different and they should just get to know their babies. Um, You know, and the most important, so kick counts, unfortunately are wonderful, but they're also bad because if a lot of providers say, oh, you got your 10 kicks and your baby's okay, which we know, every baby's different, right? So using a kick count app is wonderful to get to know your baby, but just remember, if you're worried, don't do the kick count, just give us a call. And that's, I think, Count the Kicks is really working on that narrative as well, because um, it's so important. Um, every baby is different. Um, babies don't slow down at the end. Their movements, of course, can change and adapt. Um, and I, I really go back to the the change in adaption shouldn't make you nervous. It should just feel like an obvious transition of a baby that is, you know, gaining half a pound a week. Um, But it shouldn't be something that you're like, I'm not feeling it. It shouldn't be where the, it, it should always be reassuring. I have seen, 41 weekers where I do the Leopolds and the limbs are moving like crazy and the baby is clearly still moving quite actively. So um, it, we just have to get out those narratives and really, I, you know, always speaking to the trust instincts. Remember, you can trust your instincts entirely in call and unfortunately we can't prevent all stillbirths. So I think it's really important to know that you didn't do anything wrong. Um, if you did trust your instincts, something happened. Um, but, you know, uh, I think that one of the things what is that providers are afraid to talk about this because they don't want to put undue burden, but I know every single person out there who's lost a child, we blame ourselves regardless as parents if something doesn't go right, but it's so, so important to um, make, sorry, I saw the chat below and I got distracted for a second. It's so, so important to know that you did everything you possibly could. In my own high-risk pregnancy, I did everything I possibly could because... I knew I was at risk for terrible outcomes, and I said, I have to put all the energy I can into this, and if something terrible happens to one of these babies, then something happens, but we, I need to know I did everything I could.
0: Yes, I agree. And I saw I-
1: something about the, what are Leopolds? Um, yeah. So Leopolds are what we do to kind of tell the position of the baby and kind of estimate the size. Honestly, I use it mostly as assess the position of the baby, but I also use it and every when I'm especially a term to see, I want my babies to react to me. Um, So I'm really also judging how they react. It's not that I do anything differently if they don't, but as I said, I use it along with the, how's the mother feeling about her baby that day? So um, I had a patient come in a few weeks ago who was semi worried. And then I said, well, let's see what your baby does. And then I didn't get a reaction and I didn't really like it. So we did the NST and the ultrasound and, you know, she felt very reassured after that. So it's something that you can use in conjunction, I think, as a provider, but not every baby's going to respond the same way, but a person who is worried and then we do in the baby's wild, we may say, oh, let's still do the evaluation. But I think we both find it very reassuring. Um, It was studies that they actually did even on animals. Um, that they show that tickling the head, same thing we do sometimes in labor, we'll do what's called scalp stim and we'll tickle the baby's head and baby responding with the acceleration and the heart rate has actually been shown that the baby is actually doing quite fine in utero. So we'll use it sometimes even in labor when we're like, is it time to go to section? Can we wait a few more hours? Um, So just a really good way of assessing a baby.
0: Yeah, that's great. So here's some provider type questions. Why are providers still telling us to drink juice and ice water and chocolate and, you know, when we call in and where they're coming from? You know, it's a lot of nurses and ER people I know, but I think even OBs, to be honest.
1: Yeah. And I know uh, the ER, so every hospital system is different. Um, Our ER is never going to evaluate a pregnant person um, unless they're coming solely for concern that's clearly not obstetric. So um, a nosebleed. You know, something like that. Um, So everybody's evaluated by an OB-GYN in our hospital system. Um, I don't know how other hospitals operate in terms of that. Um, I think the juice thing comes from the idea that maybe your baby just needs a little sugar and then it's going to kind of perk up. Um, That certainly could be true for some babies, but there's no studies that have shown that it really helps differentiate between a baby that's in struggling or not. But unfortunately, it just causes delay. Um, and I think by the time even my well-informed patients in our practice call, they've already done that. They've already tried the juice and the food thing. So telling them to do that again is just further delaying care. It's not very, very few patients aren't quickly drinking something or eating something, pushing their baby around. They're not, they're not getting the normal feedback that they expected. So they should just be brought in. Um, but part of that is we don't have something from ACOG that says here's your practice bulletin about fetal movement and here is the guideline about it and um, that's a big part of the problem is we need something that is very clear that says don't talk about this and there are little things that are hidden amongst a couple different things but we need a very standardized thing that says the good the bad and the ugly here's the good data here's the not good data that's still an improvement over what we got, which is a paragraph in the stillbirth kind of um, guideline. And, and then there's a paragraph in the antenatum field move uh, and name surveillance. It talks about NSTs, all the things. It needs to be combined into a concise document that providers can read and refer to. Um, and and it, I, I, yeah, of I the do route. have like, an example. would you okay, say?
0: You do have an example. Yeah. yeah. I think, isn't it the reality though? Like this is your job. I mean, keeping the baby alive and the mother. So for me that ACOG hasn't done it yet, it's so, so unacceptable. Like,
1: yeah. And I don't they,
0: like to um, point fingers, but for me, that's like, hello. Well, and I, I think, think for something that 40%
1: of people are going to complain about, right? 40% of people are going to have the complaint that their baby isn't moving right in their pregnancy. So it doesn't make sense. It's something that 40% of your patients may approach you about that. We don't have anything. And as I said, I don't expect them to say, there. we need to get better data. We need to get better stuff about this. Unfortunately, the studies that have been done haven't shown the outcome that we know is true, is that education should make a difference. And I think there's many reasons for that. But I think, and I can certainly, I mean, let me show this document that I think would be such an easy thing to, um, do. So um, Oops, that's not what I wanted to share. I have it up here. Let's see. Is this sharing it? I think. Let's see. How do I share it? Let's see. Mm -hmm. Here it is. Okay, perfect. So this is um, a document Um, from up to date. So this is Dr. Google, um, but I shouldn't even say the word Google because it's much better. So this is what we all use. Um, You can see actually at the top of the screen that I have 227 hours this year reading this this document. So this is what I go to when patients have questions. This is what I send to my patients when they want more information. I just copy paste it into our portal. Um, And this is from Dr. Ruth Fratz, who's actually a wonderful um, physician that I've communicated with. Um, And so she's somebody who's always been a strong advocate for stillbirth prevention. And what this is, is it's peer reviewed. So you can see that it is updated just on October 18th, right? So basically yesterday, this has been updated. So it's always done. I'll just scroll through it. It talks about normal fetal movement patterns. It's very comprehensive. Again, here you see talking about 40% of people will present at least one time and four to 15% will come multiple times in the third trimester. It talks about the pathophysiology. It talks about the known significance of it, which everybody admits to. It talks to the diagnosis, which I really love here. Again, this is exactly what we're doing. We're giving all pregnant people the verbal and written information. Verbal is so important. Um, at each visit, they are doing exactly what I'm doing in my practice from the UK type protocol, the importance of medical of maternal awareness, by the way, when they're saying our practice, this is a Harvard practice. So this is, you know, from what we consider a gold standard institution um, that we counsel patients um, if they should contact their provider if any changes, and then, sorry, I have a child entering the room right now. <laughs> Um, And then scrolling down, it talks about different referential diagnosis, the evaluation. Um, And then if you scroll all the way to the end of this, the management piece at the bottom here, kind of bringing people in and doing what they need to do. And they even approach the issues with the current data so far um, and what may be causing us not to see the event, what we kind of need. And then what we really need is just a simple summary and recommendations that they do here. So this is what I love about Up to date is it really goes through all the stuff. And as you can see, they say, what's, what's the grade of the evidence? So they're not holding back in this document from saying, there's some things that we don't have what we need. They're just simply summarizing and saying it. They're putting it into the narrative. Um, I'm not expecting people to say, oh, this is 100% the you know, what we need to do, this is perfect. We need better data. Dr. Zell's working on that. Multiple other studies are coming out, but we need to put it out there. We need to do our best as we can to make sure that this is being discussed because I truly don't believe that we're doing much to help our patients because it's so obvious to us, the connection, we need to help our patients make it. And I think, you know, if you read into this, what they say is with the affirm trial, which was a huge trial that unfortunately didn't give the results we wanted, was something called the Hawthorne effect. So if you say to people, we're doing a study to resist reduce stillbirth about fetal movement education, you don't know that the control group is actually not doing the research themselves and educating themselves. So you have, it's, one of those things that once you know that silver still, still happens, and you know that decreased field movement may be a reason for it, already you've changed things. So the fact that they nearly approached significance, they actually saw a 9% reduction, but their powered was for 15%. That was affected by the fact that the control group in this may have known exactly what the study was looking for and then by definition reduced their own rate as well.
0: Yeah, no, I totally can see that, and it's annoying that anyone, especially ACOG, wouldn't, you know, take that into account. That you know, just knowing that the studies about fetal movement change, you might kind of look into it yourself, or even the place that it was done. Like I told Dr. Hazel, I think we should do it in the United States, where we do not get any education like at most providers, yes. and that we would have a better population to even go into because. Then yes. you would really see much more drastic in a difference, and you know, being educated on this versus not knowing much at all. Um,
1: so I do, have, and we can. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and I think if anybody, I, I don't know if there's a way that we can post this somewhere that if people want to refer to it or even say to your doctors, "Oh, look what I found," and up to date, you know, kind of thing. I, I think that a lot of providers might not even know that this wonderful document exists. So
0: maybe we can get it as a. PDF version, because I think you need access and then we can try to share it out. Yeah. And
1: it's, well, it's something that I can email to, I emailed it already to Samantha. So it's something that we can, use. you can easily kind of email this to people. So, okay, great.
0: We'll share it then. And so the other thing that I've been asked here multiple times to ask you, how have you seen the change in your practice as far as reducing stillbirth since you started using protocols that you learned about?
1: So this is the question I get every single time I do this. So again, in order to prove that we have made any difference with this, you have to have millions of people. Stillbirth is so rare, thankfully, but it's not rare enough that in a small practice like ours, we can't say that we save babies. We can hope that we have, we can say that we've had patients who we've evaluated and found things and delivered. Unfortunately, you can't prove that that happened. What I can tell you is that we've improved our care, that we have educated our patients better, that I have had many patients say pre-using the UK protocol and post that they felt like they were better heard by our practice members. They felt empowered more. They felt like they were listened to better. So I can tell you a thousand percent that I think we've improved the care that we provided. We've improved what we have been able to do in terms of taking care of our patients. But unfortunately, I can't say that we saved babies because we don't know what the other path would have been. So we can I can hope that that patient who called with decreased movement and we delivered immediately, which we've done many times since we started this, but I don't actually know that she wouldn't have gone home later that day. The baby would have returned to normal movement and been fine for another week. So that's, that's the really difficult piece is we don't know that some babies aren't very, very naughty and then go back to normal behavior. Um, When I was a resident uh, at the high risk I can't tell you how many times I would see incredibly naughty, like 26, 27 weekers who then were like, oh, you know, I'm over it. And would go back to normal behavior, which is part of why I don't like taking care of those patients. And I deliver only at 34 plus weeks because it used to give me an aneurysm every time. Um, So we don't know truly that those babies that come in that we deliver wouldn't have been okay if we just watched them. Um, which is part of the challenge of the preterm. But again, at 37 plus weeks, we need to be able to say, this baby's a term, it's being naughty and not fear any repercussion for us in the hospital by delivering for that instinct and then figuring out what do we do. And that's where I hope EPV is gonna be very useful. In you have the patient who presents multiple times, let's say at 35 weeks and the baby is normal size, but the EPV shows 0.3 percentile. I would love to be able to find a way that we can deliver at, at those preterm distational ages based on EPV as well, um, which is why this is so important, the prospective studies that are coming out with that. Mm-hmm.
0: Measuring placentas, which we don't do yes, exactly. yes. And it's very sad to hear a baby was stillborn who was perfectly healthy and the placenta yes. only factor, it wasn't growing and it was possible to measure and no one did it because it just isn't standard yet. So we definitely are advocating with Measure the Placenta for that because that's inexcusable to me.
1: Yeah, I think it's gonna be a game changer. I really do. I think we know a third of term stillbirths are because the placenta is too small. Um, and I really, truly think the prospective studies that are being done are gonna show that maybe it's not just stillbirth. Maybe it's other complications happen. Even if the baby is born alive, maybe the meconium aspiration is higher. Maybe the NICU admissions are higher you know, there's so many things that we might find that we can actually improve outcomes even if the child is, you know, thankfully born living.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there could be other detriments to their development and we can definitely improve, you know, how babies come out alive as well and not have like lifelong disabilities and things. Um, just seeing how, you know, even the cord. So do you guys do anything with the cord? I know for low-risk pregnancies, like we don't really get scans after the 20-week one really, so everyone's yeah, just the, hoping it goes well at the end
1: yeah the chord's very hard um if we, so cord insertion to the placenta is part of a routine anatomic scan, which is important. So if we see like a marginal cord insertion or a filamentous one, um, we're following those pregnancies carefully. Um, the, if we notice a hypo or hypercoiled, um, that is a hard thing to do exactly. But if we see that it seems undercoiled or overcoiled, that has an association with stillbirth. Um, it's important to know that nuchal cord has not actually been associated with stillbirth. Um, I, we see them all the time. I deliver healthy babies every single time I'm on call with that. Um, and so it's one of those things that people panic a lot about, but be reassured that if for some reason you got an ultrasound and they saw that, that's actually not un, you know, a concern. I think what we need to figure out, which you and I have talked about, is what is causing that compression to be too much for a baby? There's got to be something that's happening that's causing that clot in the cord, and we know that it may be undercoiling or overcoiling. So, getting better training on it because it is so hard to measure a cord because everybody knows the baby's moving around. Have you measured that cord already? Have you not measured that cord already? Um, it's really hard. I, I, I want to. I've said to you, I think a microbiologist needs to study these cord compression losses to see if they can find something. Somebody at a cellular level has to look and find that there's a gene or there's something that's making these cords that we know there's 70 centimeters up to normal, right? A huge amount of cord. And this is only happening to 19% of the term stillverse, but there must be something in there. There must be something that we can learn about why this happened to some babies and not others. And I think, there is a basic science research that for people far smarter than me um, to look into, to figure out something in these cords that is causing this. Mm -hmm.
0: I agree. And we need to do more because even calling it cord accident, like Mm -hmm. freaks me out because I'm like, it's not accidental if you're not really watching it, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, and I think the other issue is the cord accident is so used as an excuse for why the baby has died. Every time you get a nuchal cord for a stillborn baby, the providers are saying, oh, that's what happened. And it's a total missed opportunity to find out what truly happened and be able to give future reassurance to families for the next pregnancy or better surveillance. So we need to stop saying that the nuchal cord was a reason for it or this was the reason for it. We need to get more information for lost families via autopsy and good placental studies to make sure that we're doing everything we can for the pregnancy after loss families, especially to know that we look, we di- there was a stone unturned. Um, so always send the placenta, always talk about the autopsy. It really can give so much information. Um, and that's very ACOG supported um, to get the best information we can so we know that we're doing the best we can after these losses.
0: And I do want to say something about the nuchal cord, because I do know parents who have had stillbirth with nuchal cord situations, but there are other factors involved, like the length of the cord perhaps is too short (laughs) and the type of cord issues. So I know that it sucks to see it because then you're like, oh my God, how did they not see that there was all this going on and they didn't do an ultrasound and it makes you feel like horrible as the parent, like that could have been definitely seen on an ultrasound and my baby could be here. So I do think that there's more to it than just to say, well, there's nuchal cord, you're okay, because a lot of babies are born okay, but they need to follow it up with more, you know, looking at the cord, like, is it actually long enough for the delivery to happen naturally, vaginally? Or, you know, what else do we need to do here to make sure that this baby comes out safely?
1: Yeah, no. Babies can be very naughty due to cords. But what I think the issue is, and I think for anybody who's out there that they were told that it was a nuchal cord, make sure Harvey has seen your placenta, um, because he it, it is blamed so much. And it if it is the cause that he sees is the reason that you had a totally healthy placenta and a totally healthy looking cord, then maybe that was, but don't let that be the reason because your OB or your midwife told you that because you're missing the opportunity for him to look at your placenta and maybe have EPV done your next pregnancy because they may have told you that and didn't actually have a good placental pathologist look at your placenta with a fine tooth comb. So I'm not saying that it couldn't have been the reason. I just want to make sure Dr. Kleiman has so many times again for my patients shown that our suspicion was totally wrong. Um, So make sure your placenta has been looked at very well if you were told this is the reason why your baby died to make sure if you have future pregnancies, especially that your doctors are able to dot every I and cross every T because we hate to find that your placenta was small and the nuchal cord because right, if you had a small placenta with very little gas left, and the cords around the neck that may have been too much for your baby. So your baby may have had an unhealthy placenta, which led to the cord being too much.
0: Right. And I will share just an anecdote as well from our big push, the father who shared their story, their baby was um, inter-uterine growth restricted, so very small and she was full term. And so they wanted to blame it on the cord when they first Mm -hmm. told them like, oh, your baby died because of a cord accident, (laughs) you know? And he kind of was like, that doesn't really add up, you know? Why would the baby be so tiny then, you know? Like this didn't just happen at the end. It was an accidental, like a freak accident where now all of a sudden my baby died from this. It was something ongoing going on with the pregnancy.
1: Yes, and so, and that's totally true. So uh, the cord may be around the neck a healthy placenta and a healthy cord—that's not going to be what happened. So this baby was small, or a small placenta, and then you have a, as I said, a terrible gas tank, or a terrible connection from the gas tank to the baby, because the cord is undercoiled or not enough warden's jelly or whatever it is. You know, so you get this kind of thickness or this over thinness, or it's marginally inserted, and then. One little thing may be too much for the baby. So, keeping an eye on that placenta via an estimated placental volume is going to hopefully be shown that is going to be how we differentiate between the babies who can handle a nuchal cord and those that can't.
0: We're getting really deep into details. I love this conversation, but just to kind of give (laughs) providers, just to give providers some like confidence in talking about fetal movement with their patients. Does this increase the amount of your patients coming in all the time? Like, cause I feel like some of them are worried like, oh, now we're going to scare all of our patients about stillbirth and they're going to come running in every night. And I don't want to do that. I don't have the time. Like we don't have the staff for that. Did it really change the amount of time your patients came in?
1: I honestly don't think so. Um, I think because we're doing it at the right time telling somebody at 37 weeks, you know, your baby's movements are important. They're going to get that in their mind and they're going to call. If you tell them at 20 to 24 weeks before they're kind of getting into that movement stage, and you're saying to them, you're going to become the expert on your baby and you're going to get to know your baby, I think that causes a lot less anxiety. So I think the timing is incredibly important. If you say to somebody at 38 weeks, oh, you know, your baby might be a risk for stillbirth and call us if something doesn't seem right. I think you're causing a lot more anxiety than if you're doing it at 20, 21 weeks before they're even starting to notice consistent patterns and education. Again, it's educating them. Your movements are important. You are the expert on your baby and you're going to trust your instincts. Um, talking about the myths early, talking about the not listening to the mothers, the sisters, the cousins, the nurse aunt who knows everything about everything, saying that at the earlier stages of that second trimester time is going to, I think, significantly reduce the anxiety. Um, we have much more of an onerous burden in our practice for the COVID than we do for um, these, this implementation. So far and away, we're doing a lot more ultrasounds and scans because of the impact of COVID than from decreased fetal movement.
0: Hmm. So, I mean, honestly, I do think it's worth it for every provider to discuss this because the worst thing for all of us is that we were never warned. And so now we have this, what if regret, yes. you know, where it was like, maybe I couldn't have saved Owen. Maybe it was too late. Regardless, the first few compressions could have done enough damage that he wouldn't have had a good life. You know, I have all those thoughts too. Yeah. So it sucks for me personally. And I know all the parents listening and watching that have lost the baby to be like, Oh, why didn't we get told at least we would have had a fighting chance, Mm -hmm. which is important. Like you said earlier for you to feel like on your side as well, that the providers have done everything on their ends possible. Yeah. We can all sleep better at night, you know?
1: Yeah. I, you know, I think part of why I'm here today is I had an amazing outcome from a incredibly high risk pregnancy and I knew everything I could do to maximize the outcome for my kids. And I told them every day what they needed to do. And I said, keep on moving. And I knew things that helped me have a better case. And I, as I said, I I think that had something bad happened to me and I had lost one of the triplets, I think I would have been able to know that I was empowered to know everything I needed to know that pregnancy because I was an OBGYN. And I would have said, I did everything right, I couldn't have done better. And it just, the idea that we're gonna make people feel more guilty about giving them this education. They feel guilty and they're blaming themselves as you said, it's not your fault, this happened to you. And I think we just have to as providers give every single tool to say, if this terrible outcome happens to you, and unfortunately we cannot prevent hundred percent, you know that your doctors and your internet and your, you did everything right. And unfortunately just terrible things sometimes still happen.
0: Yeah. And I do see someone mentioned count the kicks has research on the fact that doing kick counting and getting to know your baby is actually more reassuring for a mother and a, creates a bond it makes you feel more comfortable you don't think you would come running in as much because you would feel more in control and you're kind of like okay my baby's consistent still consistent and then when the time comes if it ever happens god forbid you would be like you know what this is different i'm going in and you just you know it feels so different than if you have no it's all sudden like blindsided by stillbirth by having a baby die on you
1: I completely agree. And that's why I, I, and I write down the Count the Kicks app because I don't know what other apps are out there. So my patients are told to get to know their babies with this. And I love the Count the Kicks is not advocating for that decreased movement. It's saying, I noticed a change and just call your provider because we want it, getting to know your baby is the most important thing in the world because there's nobody who knows your baby better. And, you know, we just sometimes... We need to do that. And as I said, kind of in my speech, we scare about the cold cuts and we talk about the cold cuts, and there's such less impact from that education. But we're not talking about the most important sign that our ba- baby is doing okay. It, it doesn't make any logical sense. So, you know, I have patients who are terrified at their visits because they ate a cold cut sandwich by mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but yet, did or not, you know, if we're not educating about this, it doesn't make any sense. And it's not helping our patients. And We need to be brave. We need to, as providers, and just start the narrative um, because I think everybody out there will find that if you start this communication with patients and you start at the right time, you're going to not have them run for the hills. You're not going to make them overly anxious. It's just telling them to exercise, eat healthy, and not gain excessive weight. I mean, we give tons of advice to patients about how to have a healthy pregnancy. This is just another piece.
0: And you do this every visit, correct? Not just like mine gave me a pamphlet apparently when I got pregnant at eight weeks that they think was in my packet. Yeah, yeah. Like what well, vitamins? Yeah, e it's, a, it's a nap in that big packet. Free. Yeah. So I was like, um, maybe you should have talked about it after 26 weeks when there was a pattern. And maybe you should have said it every time and more, more to the point of like, what am I looking for? Because they would just say, oh, is your baby moving okay today? Like if they mentioned it, right? Because so, they're just checking off a yeah. box on their list and not yeah. doing it for the fact of making me aware. So, yeah. I think that having it more on a regular basis and being more direct is like, you're looking for a change here. Like if there's ever a change, come right in.
1: Yes, it It's, there's a difference between saying, is your baby moving? Yes or no. Or do you have any concerns about fetal movement today? So you need open-ended open-ended is going I cannot tell you how many times patients if I had said that they would have said yes but so instead of having them have to say the but just make it an open-ended question um and yes it should be readdressed every single solitary visit and I can't tell you I review losses for our hospital and I can't not help but not see that the question is often not there and it may have been addressed but it it We need to make sure that that's probably one of the most important things we can ask, right? If somebody's having contractions, they're gonna call if they're going to labor, right? I mean, the vast majority of pregnant people are gonna call if they have bleeding, but they may not be calling because their baby's not moving. And so we need to make that go to the top of every prenatal visit.
0: One thing I want you to kind of discuss is the reassurance that we do get. So if we do go in, sometimes they just check your heartbeat, the baby's heartbeat. And they find one and they're like, oh, your baby's fine. Go home, you know? So, or they might do an NST or they might go to the BPP. Like, what is your standard? What do you do if someone says something to you?
1: So we're using the UK protocol in our office. So what happens is now, obviously there's some gestational ages you can't do an NST. So um, a non-stress test only really after 32 weeks can you definitively, but you can really do it at 26, 27 weeks but the NST, which is watching for variability in the heart rate and something called accelerations, the baby's brain heart like interaction is not mature enough until the kind of mid to late second trimester. So if you're 22 weeks and your doctor does not do an NST, that's actually very reasonable. So, um, and before viability, they should never be doing that. Um, When our patients come in, we do the NST. If they have a risk factor for stillbirth, we do an ultrasound for growth in fluid. We don't do the BPP, which is called a biophysical profile if the NST is reactive because it's not been shown to be evidence-based. And the NST kind of goes against doing a BPP. If um, they do not have a risk factor for stillbirth but they're not reassured by it, then they're going to get the ultrasound for growth and fluid. And after the evaluation, as I said, kind of the most important piece is, are you feeling reassured by this? And 99% of our patients are. They, I can see them come in concerned and I see them leave with a smile on their faces and my nurses will tell this time and again, um, or they'll come in and they'll start laughing and be like, now the baby's moving and the baby will pass all those tests. So we're really, what we have to get to is the, recurrent decreased fetal movement and elevating that is as important a reason for induction, as I say, the blood pressures or other things. And I think, I truly believe every one of those recurrent decreased fetal movement, not reassured patients is going to end up having a small placenta. And I think that's why the EPV is so important. I think we're going to find that the vast majority will. And those who don't, they should be delivered anyway, right? I mean, if their term, nobody who's 39 weeks, who's worried about their babies should be sent home to have this complication happen. That is a preventable stillbirth. And we that needs to end. That, in my opinion, that is a never happen event. A person who feels reassured at 39 weeks, great. I had a patient about a year ago who was not reassured by the evaluation. So I admitted her for continuous monitoring because she wasn't quite 39 weeks. And we just monitored her and somewhere two in the morning that baby said "Ah, I'm here and baby started moving and she said I am so reassured now my baby's back to normal I'm ready to go home and came in three days later and had a beautiful healthy baby so it's working with our patients and figuring out how do we work with their instincts and what they're saying and like this example i gave this mother somewhere two or three in the morning her instinct said you know what this baby's totally fine now and it was and we had a beautiful outcome so it's working with our patients it's having a communication and dialogue it's acting open-ended questions um what can i do to reassure you what do you think would help You know, if we can't get to that gestational age, but I really just want to get to the point where a term delivery with an unreassured patient, we counsel them about the risks. There are risks at 37 weeks compared to 39, and then we go from there. But I will tell you in my hospital, I'm so reassured because I've started to see people being delivered at earlier gestations with good counseling um, because they're worried. And that's where we want to get to. A 38-week person should not be sent home if they're worried about their babies. We should be able to deliver them.
0: Absolutely. And I know too many parents who lost at term or over term, which is really tragic because that baby Mm -hmm. have been definitely fine delivered at that time, you know, and a a couple hours difference. I know a lot of parents who say like they found out the baby probably died a couple hours before baby out. So definitely listen to yourself and go to count the kicks website as well. There's a lot of baby Save stories and that will help you kind of see the patterns of people who speak up mm-hmm. and what happens with the babies and the stories. I mean, it's just shocking. Like you hear, Oh, well, when the baby came out, the cord was this day and that way. And the placenta was this way. And if we hadn't delivered this baby in two hours would have been dead. Like it's very shocking to hear the outcomes of those stories. So definitely trust yourself. There's over a hundred stories kind of confirming that, you know, you know, best.
1: Well- And I think that's important when I was talking back to my practice. Remember, my N is very small. So my number of patients is not enough to prove things. But when you take something like count the kicks, which they probably can tell us how many users they have, then you're really maybe starting to see truly babies that you know it would have made a difference. Because again, as you said, there's probably a hundred stories. So remember, this is not every baby that is Concerning about decreased fetal movement is going to have a terrible thing happen, but we need it to evaluate it every time to make sure it's not that 0.1% where we can save that baby's life. And that's right. what Count the Kicks is showing.
0: Yeah. And I think the research that Dr. Heasel mentioned on my last interview was that there is an increase of chance of stillbirth if you've noticed a fetal movement change. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you oh, we,
1: that's been proven time and again that we that is in the ACOG articles that it is proven that decreased freedom movement is associated with stillbirth and poor outcomes for babies it's just how do we get that connection there and again I think it just comes down to as you said maybe the UK and the Norway and Scandinavian countries are not the right countries they have phenomenal health care and so they're getting better education for their patients they have much better health care than we have in the United States so you're right a huge study in the United States we're going to see a difference because the UK just does it better and Australia does it better so um well, we they need,
0: have the protocol as well on their side yeah
1: they've been using the protocol for you know since 2009 um, so it's, it's totally a different game. So when you do a study to see if the intervention makes a difference, you don't know that all those control patients in these other countries that, you know, these meta-analyses come from, they're better countries than us in terms of their health care. So they're going to have patients who are naturally going to be more educated because they're all getting prenatal care. They're all getting great access. It's universally covered versus us where who knows the quality of prenatal care, especially more marginalized, you know, groups are getting. Mm-hmm.
0: So this is a very specific question, but I want to give it to you just from this chat. They said, what do you think of the vibroacoustic therapy, like alarm clock, oh, yeah. during NST to wake up your baby. Is that okay to do? Because it's almost similar to me as stimulating with juice and stuff. Like they're trying to see if your baby's okay during an NSC. And then they use a device, I guess, to wake them up if they're thinking they're asleep. I
1: think it's similar to taking somebody who is incredibly ill and banging a drum over their head. I I got one of my nurses when I was pregnant with the triplets used to come and sneak attack me with the Vibro q stem. I can tell you that it caused my babies to move and it was not reassuring movement. It almost seemed like they were being jolted into something. Um, I think a gentle Leopold is a much better way to see what reaction we get from our babies. I think you will wake up, as I said, somebody who's probably in a near coma, if you put loud enough music in their ears, it doesn't feel good for patients. As I said, I've got fiber Q6 dimmed and I thought it was incredibly uncomfortable and I felt the movements did not feel good. So I would not recommend that. My hospital hasn't done that as long as I can remember. We've not fiber Q6 dimmed. So I, I don't think that's even recommended by ACOG.
0: I feel sad reading it because I feel like that might've been done, you know, in her case um and you know as a patient we don't know better we're just like okay this is what they do they're doing their thing and they're making sure my baby's okay and now you know you take that as reassurance you go home and so for a lot of patients we've gotten reassurance with these type of devices but we ourselves are not possibly reassured fully Mm -hmm. but you take you know what your doctor is saying they're the ones educated on all this So it's difficult for you later when you say, well, what should I have done in that case? You know, I can't really fight back with my doctor. I don't have the degree and you know, I'm going to him for care. He should know better.
1: And well, again, it's a baby that has enough reserve that when I touch their little head in Leopold and they start moving, that is very different than the amount of reserve it would take for a thunderclap, which what a view of bibercusic stim is the abdomen, Even a baby who has very little left might be able to muster something for that. But as I said, I had it probably done to me half a dozen times when I was pregnant. I never felt good. It never made me smile, the movements I was getting. It made me feel very uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, she said that unfortunately they did it several times during her NSTs. Yeah. Her baby's just precious. He should be here, I'm so sorry yeah and so i think with this conversation it's important for anyone who has lost a baby as you were saying to know it's not your fault and we just didn't know anything else other than what we were told at the time and you know we're all trying to do better for other families now that we hope we're changing the rate of stillbirth by speaking out sharing our stories and showing like it can happen to anyone it happened to me i was already a mother i went to ucla i'm educated i read all the books i did all the things you know i did everything I possibly could to get my son here. And then he died at the end. And, you know, he was pretty young. He was under 32 weeks. So sometimes I wonder, had I really known about movements? If I went in, would he have been pulled out at that stage? Especially with my doctors, I don't feel like they would have necessarily listened. And so, you know, we never know how it could have turned out, but I don't really blame myself. And I hope no one else does either watching this because we would have saved our babies if we
1: could have. Yeah, never, ever anybody's fault, as Harvey said, and it's, this is never the fault of the patient, and it is the fault of the education that we're providing, and we need to do better, we need to be able to say as a team, because doctors feel terrible too when this happens, and I think one of the things that's so important, what I've implemented in our practice is I think hopefully all my partners and providers, when these things happen, we know we did everything we could. We know that we gave the best education possible for our patients and we have the best ears to listen in our practice and we have a ton of RNs in our practice and they're here to help and knowing that we listen the best that we possibly can. So we too can help with our guilt when these things happen because we never wanna feel like we could have done better either. And that's what it comes to too, is that your doctors are grieving as well and your midwives are grieving. And this is a opportunity for the care that we provide. So we don't have the same grief as well. And we're able to say, we truly did everything we could to get the best outcome for our patients.
0: I just want to throw in that with my care after loss, they did not help me find a cause. They talked me out of the autopsy by discussing it in a very poor manner right after it happened, um, coming in and telling me that they may not find anything from it. And a lot of parents have to pay out of pocket and then they regret it because of this and that. So. Um, we didn't do that. They didn't help me find a reason for it. We tried to get meetings. We had a few and they didn't bring any of the paperwork, they had nothing with them. you know. And I was like, aren't we going to review? Like, aren't we going to go over it? Like go over the pregnancy, what happened?" So for me, it feels like some providers when it happens, feel like maybe they don't want to go into it because they don't want to be blamed and they don't want any legal um, yes. issues. Yes but with me, I mean, personally, I was like, I don't get it because you can't sue for a baby that died in California. Like there was no, I no right. You know, for his life, he didn't breathe. So uh, I just didn't quite understand that, but it just seemed like that, like they were just covering themselves and they didn't want to tell me what happened. And then my worst pain about it though, was honestly not like just the guilt that I was carrying because then I kind of shouldered it myself, but feeling like they weren't changing their practice to help anybody after me. Like, I just wanted to know that they learned from it and that they were going to help parents Mm -hmm. have better outcomes. I'm like, how can my perfect pregnancy end in stillbirth? And you guys are just like, eh, just happens. You know, I'm sorry. Sometimes healthy babies die. Oh, we're so sorry. We're crying with you, but we're not going to try to look into it scientifically at all. That really bothered me because I didn't want anyone coming behind me, losing a baby in the way that I did. I thought, You know, at the very least, I don't have my son. He's dead now. I can't get him back, but I want to know that you learned from these mistakes, whatever it was. And I don't know why it is that some providers just rather, you know, push it under the rug and go on to the next appointment with the next people without you looking back, like really going into detail and helping us. I don't know where that comes from.
1: Yeah. And I've had many, unrelated to this, I've had many conversations with my patients when things don't go exactly as I would have liked it to go, or, you know, and said, here's what I'm doing to make it better myself here. And they haven't reached out and knock on wood, you know, had any repercussions. I probably about a decade ago, I had a patient where she needed what's called a cystoscopy in her C-section. And it was a comedy of errors at three in the morning trying to get her this procedure. And It was frustrating. The patient was fine. The baby was fine. But I went and said, this wasn't so good, our coordination here. And now our hospital made a protocol and made it happen. And now I said to her, this is never going to happen again, that a patient is going to wait this long to have a procedure. So this is true in every aspect of medicine, that an honest, truthful conversation with people saying, you know, that, even if it's something much less serious than what we're talking about now, I have honest, open conversations with my patients. It is the right thing to do. It is okay to say, here's where I'm beating myself up. Maybe if we had done this or that, that isn't actually increasing our risk. There's so much evidence that the honest, truthful conversation with families and patients does not increase the chance of being sued. It's when you act like there's nothing that could have been done differently, you're defensive. You don't communicate with your patients that you're putting yourself at risk. And I think that's something that is getting more into the medical narrative, that honesty is much better than covering things up, saying, here's what I could have done better. I'm so sorry that this happened to you. It's okay. And it's it, there's so much evidence that bedside manner makes a difference when it comes to this and that being honest and truthful with patients doesn't increase your risk and saying, I'm grieving, here's where I'm thinking about things I could have done better it isn't going to make it happen. What's going to make it happen is when people feel blown off, as you said, and they feel like nothing, it was not, and, and again, that distance makes you think that you're part, the person who took care of you isn't grieving, which they are, but instead of saying, I'm grieving this too, and let's talk about this, and, you know, it, it is, it's, it's, and it's not easy, it's not easy to have hard conversations with patients. It it doesn't give you, you joy, it's but it's so the right thing to do. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean I tried so hard and then I feel like I failed in a way because I wasn't able to help the other families after me at that hospital. It's like, well, they're just gonna keep doing this, you
1: know. Well the worst. You're certainly thing. making a huge difference now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're amazing mother Surprised.
0: to do. I'm doing it in a bigger scale now but individually the hospital just would not have the conversation with me and it was very disappointing so I think we do have it now though <laughs> yeah and I agree with you like if they would have told me that there was a mistake and they were like okay we're going to do this different I would have been like okay you know I can handle that I can you know take it for what it is I can't sue there were no rights to my son so I couldn't sue But I would have been feeling much better the rest of my life, knowing that he had an impact, which is all we want is our children's life to matter and be like, look, that loss was terrible and it shouldn't have happened. And now we're going to do this differently.
1: Yeah, I've had I've had things that I've changed for patients. And, you know, you just say, hey, this was even near misses, you know, even things like that, you need to say, what can we do to keep us from having this happen again? That's how healthcare improves. And it means a lot to patients, even this patient, where, as I said, everything was absolutely fine. It was just a procedure that got delayed saying to her, we're never gonna let that happen again to a patient. It meant a ton to her. And 10 years later, she's still my patient and, you know, and we have a great relationship. So it is so, so important that we do things to just, I don't know, it's just, it's so sad to me that we have a point in medicine where we're just so afraid to have that amazing bond with our patients, because I have great relationships with my patients. And I have, I, it gives me so much pleasure in my job, you know, that I'm there for my patients through thick and thin and good times and bad and supporting them through any aspects of their lives. And it's why I'm not burnt out as a doctor. And I love what I do every day is just having these wonderful relationships for whatever sadness reason it is
0: yeah I mean like we said we can't prevent every loss but at least we would feel like we were partnering together and Mm -hmm. like this mattered to you as well and like you know we're gonna do everything we can to improve care now you know after the loss so I think it is important for providers to think about that and not create this distance and you know we do feel like we're against you after when you're just like we're not going to talk about it it just happened you know you're like what the heck man you know you're going to tell me why my baby died and then of course it becomes like a aggressive situation where we're like we yeah. deserve answers you know we need to know why our babies died so that we can heal and we can know what to do for future pregnancies if we choose to so and also for science for change you know we all want things to get better so I think doctors need to think about that too. And how yeah. would you just say, lastly, how can we get our providers on board with stillbirth prevention protocols? <laughs> I mean, I know oh, I'm, really, I'm trying to get ACOG, we all are, we're trying to get them on board and we're trying to do the online you know, changes, but individually, can we talk to providers? Uh, ourselves and tell long
1: I think that could help. I think as I've always thought the keystone was ACOG and a practice bulletin. I I just know how I listen. I mean, ACOG or SMFM tells me to do something and I do it. Um, I trust them. And that is, I think one of the biggest things, because I think the barrier for kind, caring OBs and midwives is well, this isn't standard of care, and I want to practice standard of care. So we need to change of standard of care. And I truly think people will fall in line. Um, I I think unfortunately it's too grassroots at this point. And I I think lost families talking to their individual OBGYNs and saying, You can honor my child by trying to do A, B, and C, um, showing them the card, saying, can you give these to all the patients? And can you do it in honor of my child? I think having those conversations, especially if you have phenomenal providers that you care about very much, your relationship, one at a time, we really can start to get a following. Um, uh, Excuse me, when I went to ACOG in um, May, I talked to a ton of providers and most were, young minority physicians, and they were excited about education, and they knew stillbirth could be prevented, and there are so many doctors out there who just need to be empowered that this is an okay thing to do, and we just have to reach them, and you guys out there are amazing resources for your, you know, in honor of your children to be able to do that.
0: Okay, so I I said it was the last question, but really I wanted to kind of back up for one. When you- are worried about fetal movement and your baby isn't full term, what do most providers think? Because I think they're more worried about legal action. um, If your baby comes out too early and then is in the NICU Mm -hmm. and then perhaps has some problems, you know, what do you think about that? Like are doctors really thinking that or are they more like, "Mm, it's not big enough? Uh, Reason to pull the baby, so I'm just gonna wait. Yeah, you
1: you do have to be very very careful with preterm because of the fact that you don't want to deliver a preterm baby that may have been fine, fine inside. So I think in those situations where you have a really worried person and you don't have that tangible evidence, do prolonged monitoring. If that baby is gonna, it's going to show its true colors. And I think if let's say you're 34 weeks and your doctor won't deliver, you say, can we just monitor my baby for 24 hours? I truly think that baby, if it is going to have an uterine, interuterine, you know, kind of stillbirth demise, it's going to show its true colors. Um, And I think that is a really good thing to ask for because it's not a big ask. Um, Ask for a high-risk OB consult, um, you know, ask for an EPV if you can, you know. But unfortunately, our hands are very tied because, the long, long-term prematurity does have risks in, in delivering babies early does. But so we need to have more evidence that this baby truly needs to be born. But if that baby starts to show what's called a category three tracing where we know that they're acidotic, because I truly believe all those babies would show that, they're gonna show it in a relatively soon frequency. If you're going in incredibly worried about movement and your baby currently looks okay, say, can you just monitor me for 24 hours? And I think that's a really powerful tool you can use because the baby um, should show its true colors during that time.
0: I love that. I think that honestly, that's all I can go back to with my son is, had I known more about kick counting and had I seen this like a few days prior when the compression started, maybe I could have been that tough mom that I'm kind of engaging with all my audience now telling you to be, And fight, you know, to stay overnight and be like, look, you might not see it right now, but I feel like there's a change. So I'm staying here, which is what I did with my pregnancy after loss, because then I understood that babies could just die. So I fought for a whole week, my last week in pregnancy, I was there and I was very happy to be on a monitor constantly, you know, and I did that because I didn't trust that you know, things were okay. And they were like, okay, we're going to do that for you. You know, they didn't, I mean, they fought back a little because they said, I need a good reason to tell insurance, but we had a little bit of low fluid at that time. And I said, I'm not leaving. Cause what if the cord compresses and I'm at home an hour away and I have to drive here, my baby could die again. I'm not doing that. So I think that it's important. Like you said, say something, stay there if you need to and get your care that you need. And I think, yeah, we could be saving quite a few babies, even if they're earlier term, cause I do see younger ones where sometimes I think, wow, that's really amazing that this parent knew that there was a change and they were like confident enough to say, no, I need to be checked. And like, they go there and they demanded and the doctors did their job and they found out there was a problem and the baby's here and might have a couple months in NICU, but they're fine now, you know? So it's definitely yeah. powerful when you start to read those save stories.
1: Yeah, so there's three types of tracings. There's category one, category two, and category three. Um, category two tracings can suggest that babies may have some issues, but then they'll come right. That but they could very much be okay. So an example would be what's called a prolonged deceleration, which happens all the time preterm, where we'll watch a baby and then all of a sudden it will have a deceleration and it comes back and is just fine. The category three tracing is without any gestational age shown to be a sign that the baby is acidotic meaning it is not getting the oxygen that it needs and so for example my partner probably about a year and a half ago had a covid patient call in saying my baby's not moving and i think it was 31 weeks came in and had a category 3 tracing so no variability so flat line with these big decelerations and she delivered the baby and it baby is healthy so you need that that monitoring if it gets that category three tracing which is probably the vast majority of babies right before are going to show we can deliver at any gestational age um and that's why i think prolonged monitoring is one of the best things you can do at that difficult decision making for us because we have to be careful we can't deliver babies at 32 weeks who would have been absolutely fine at 35 weeks it's not a safe plan, but those babies are going to show their true colors that need to be delivered, just like, you know, this example I gave.
0: Wow. I you just gave me so much hope right now. I just want to tell you like, I don't get happy often because it's hard. I'm a grieving mother, but just knowing like there is a way to catch those babies like my son is just, whew, it means a lot. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think it's it's a small ask, you know, it really truly is. do you know people get in car accidents we monitor for 24 hours it doesn't take a lot of resources you put the baby on the monitor you let the mom have you know her she can watch netflix and monitor her baby so we can get someone who
0: spent a week in the hospital it's like very luxurious they'll take care of you they bring you food the whole time so (laughs) i recommend it to anyone who's worried just go stay there and have a little vacation from your home you know everything you have at home your responsibilities but um, one last thing that someone mentioned, which does relate to my story, is that a lot of parents have um, groups taking care of them. So they see different providers. So we don't necessarily feel like we bonded with any one of them, you know, because they want you to kind of get to know each one because you don't know who will deliver you. So they kind of yes. say, it doesn't matter who takes your appointment. Um, And I do find like in research that consistency of care improves outcomes so I now tell people don't go with that route if you can find a provider that you can just consistently see. Um, And I don't know if everyone has the opportunity to to do that but also in groups I think if we all had like the protocols like you said and there's a guidelines, then maybe you would be okay regardless but. What do you, do?
1: so, yeah, so we, we actually do the rotation in our practice. If people, and it, it is again, so you can know that you're going to be in great hands, but I'll also tell you, it's a great checks and balances. I get nervous when I see somebody for the whole pregnancy, because I don't have one of my brilliant partners looking at the chart and I, my partners will catch something that I missed. Um, it, the important thing is that, you know, that you can advocate. And I think that is the most important thing. Um, I think if there, if you do have an improved outcome seeing one provider, it may be simply that bond. But if you join a practice like mine where all the doctors are phenomenal and will listen to you and be there for you, you don't have to worry about that. And again, I I think of this so many times where one of my partners will say, oh, hey, Heather, you forgot to do this. And I think back to my residency, there was a patient who got seen 77 times in triage during her pregnancy. Um, very high risk wasn't a wasn't lost concern just came in all the time and none of us ever did her GBS swab so sometimes when you are in the forest too much to trees too much you miss the forest and I think having a rotation at least in our practice is making sure the the you're not forgetting <laughs> you're not forgetting the big picture like you're so focused in on the Little in minutiae that you get to know when you see the patient, the whole pregnancy, that you're not like, "Oh my gosh, totally forgot to do that glucose test. So it is a nice checks and balances to have many brilliant minds, hopefully looking at your chart. But if you are if you're not comfortable with that, of course, talk, but you really, I wouldn't look at it as totally a negative if you like all the doctors and you, and you know and you go to a practice like mine where it's not a factory and we're all there to listen and support
0: you. Right. I think it's key is the communication between those people. And mm-hmm. someone in the comments here as well is saying that they felt it was like a terrible game of telephone where they didn't really know if it got to the right person at the end of that call. You know, and for myself as well, I always came in like, I wonder if they told the you know, doctors say me now that last time I was feeling this way, and then you know, I would try to fill in the gaps, but it just didn't feel like they communicated on their end that they were talking about me and my baby, so I just felt like nobody knew my baby. I just felt like everyone's just looking at the chart, the numbers, and what my blood pressure was right now, and things like that, and no one really knew Owen or myself. So yeah. I think that's the hard part is feeling like I didn't get great care at all, really.
1: And that's, that is a very hard part of the change around. Um, uh, But it, it is, it is a lot of it is how big of a factor is your practice. And if you're a practice like mine, where we max out at 24, 25 people a day, we're going to all give you that time where you can bring in your sibling and we're, you know, the older sibling, and you're going to get that high quality care. I think when you feel like it's a factory, is simply the fact that the person seeing you in a five-minute visit. Um, And if you're getting the 15-minute visits that we do for every single prenatal visit, I I don't think you're going to feel that way as much.
0: Yeah, we do feel very rushed in and out, and they do their Mm -hmm. checklist of things. And then, are you feeling okay? Is baby moving? Um, Any concerns? Any questions? Okay, I'll see you next week. Everything's perfect. Your your pregnancy is textbook, you know, like many of us at textbook pregnancies. So it's very shocking when your baby suddenly dies and you're like, what in the world, how could that have been a good care? Like that seemed to me like very rushed and not detailed. Um, And then the last thing here though, is I'll say, and I agree that if you do get a lot of reassurance, like a high risk pregnancy, sometimes um, we'll get so many tests and things and different doctors looking at you that are very knowledgeable and whatnot, you kind of feel like you don't have a voice anymore because you feel like well they're doing everything on their end they're they're saying it's perfect. So how do we get to the point of telling every parent like regardless of what the tests are and what your doctors are saying trust yourself more than anything and speak about it like go in and tell them like I have this issue happening and I want you to check it and I want you to check it again. And I wanna stay here and you know, kind of going into that, the other question was the um, BPPs and NSTs, a lot of parents have those the day before the stillbirth. So if they're getting an NST and the NST comes back normal, how does that parent know then to come back? Because they should, right? They should say, well, even if the NST was normal, I don't feel good today or an hour later, I'm gonna come back in.
1: Sorry about the background noise. Um, I have a teenager using a flushing uh, water flush. I think whether you're high risk or low risk, you need to say, I'm not comfortable with this. You need to be a team member. Um, It is always okay to question whoever's taking care of you, even if you know you have a phenomenal doctor and a phenomenal team watching you. Um, I think why Rainbow Clinic's work, why Dr. Hizel's model works, is it's the first, it's totally making the patient part of the care team. And that is true for high risk, low risk, people who've lost a baby, is if you feel like you're an important part of the team, you're gonna have an improved outcome and you're gonna feel empowered. And so much of it is pulling up a chair when we come into visit, sitting down, making it clear that we're not rushing through things. I mean, there's so many ways in our body language that we can convey as doctors and midwives that were listening, and you know that's an important step too. So it's I I think we just have to. I think it's going to get better. I think, and I don't mean to knock the near retirement physicians, but I think the model of a patient centered care and the doctors coming through are being trained much more in the patient centered model of care. Um, so I I truly hope the active listening is going to improve. Um, insurance companies can do their part. Play us more. Um, My practice, we run very tight because we aren't a factory and insurance companies could pay us more than they pay us and that will help every doctor be able to make ends meet and be able to give the time they need. and that's, that's a huge part of it too, is our reimbursement is really terrible for prenatal care and it makes it so you feel like you have to squeeze more and more people in if you want to make ends meet and pay the people who work for you. So mm-hmm. that could be a huge change for all of medicine is pay us what we're worth. Um, it really will make a difference too. We'll
0: have to talk offline on how to make that happen. Cause we definitely think that the money should be going to the doctors and we should be getting better care and prenatal care is so important. It's like a loss, a stillbirth affects the entire family for the rest of our lives. It does. Yeah. There's no reason this and, should be happening in America. You know, we pay the highest rates of insurance here and we have the worst outcomes. So that's definitely not mm-hmm. okay. You know, they're pretty much bleeding everyone dry. And yet
1: our outcomes- hospitals are, are losing so much money a day because the reimbursement insurance and the insurance is carrying all that money to the bank and it's forcing us as providers to see more patients than we want to, um, to be able to provide great care. I have a ton of amazing nurses and staff that help me run a great practice, but we merely make ends meet. And, uh, you know, we need to push our insurance companies to say that prenatal care is vital and that somebody should not make more money fixing a knee for two hours than I make for an entire care, care of prenatal care. That's just not fair. And it's not fair to patients and it's not fair to the people who we want people to choose this profession. It's the best area of medicine there is. And I would never do anything else, but my wonderful best friend works three days a week, um, no weekends, no nights and makes more money than I do. And that's a problem and reimbursement and that needs to change. And that would, I think, really improve care for every pregnant person out there.
0: Well, We're working on that. We're also working on the consensus statement in an hour. So I'm going to let you go. Yes,
1: I know. I'm going to see too. everybody again soon. We're
0: going to discuss, we're going to get the internet rid of this fetal movement misinformation soon. And I think what we're all doing together is really going to make a difference. So I thank you so much for your voice and for getting on the forefront of silver prevention and just speaking out, speaking the truth and just being so honest and helpful and everything we're trying to do because and that's all us parents want now we can't get our children back but we want to see change we want to see people come home with their baby
1: it's truly an honor and i have no doubt in my mind that 20 30 years from now we're all going to be sitting and talking about how we reduce the stillbirth rate in this country i have no doubt i've never had a doubt that we would get this accomplished and i, I don't know who posted it but worst club to be part of the best people I've ever met in my entire life and I'm so honored to be part of the team with you guys so yeah
0: it's more like hell for me but some people like to call it a club I never wanted to be in it
1: I really wish no worst club club ever yeah I I wish I had never met any of you guys
0: um I just wanted to say some names because I'm on with them but we're doing this in memory of Owen and Junie And all the babies gone too soon. I see Oliver's grandma's been in here and of course, Roan. And um, who else do we have? Drop some baby names if you want me to read them. I think that, you know, sadly, what we're learning is from our losses, but the fact that we're willing to share what has happened, I think will help improve, you know, care for everyone. So I just honor all your babies. And I think. Yeah. You know well, you're very strong to share just it hurts to talk about it's tragic and we wish that we knew some of these things prior and that the care had been different for us but now we know better and we want you guys to spread it as well to all your friends and family so please share this episode
1: uh, we're also doing a memory of landon yes landon oh, and then uh, my most important babies because their mama sent me on this journey so will vincent and cooper um where the people who sent me to star legacy in 2019 so i think those babies just there's so many others but thank you ladies for you know sending me on this amazing journey
0: and thank you for walking with us in dc this weekend and everybody who marched with us all around um virtually as well we had so many walks everywhere but the dc one was very powerful we hope you will watch if you haven't seen it we're gonna put a new recording on youtube soon with um, edited in some of the audio had to hear them. us. <laughs> yeah, you can hear Dr. Florisky's awesome speech on the live stream, so we will get that edited in. For Harvey. Yeah, for too, the best ones. No, just kidding.
1: <laughs> no, I you guys were the best, but I was laughing. I think ACOG was sabotaging us. <laughs> I know, like, you got
0: these two troublemakers. Nope,
1: we're going to (laughs) mute those troublemakers. (laughs)
0: Oh, Amanda's saying thank you. So, everyone loves you and they're thanking you in the chat. So, appreciate
1: you. I love you all too, very, very much.
0: And I'm glad I got to hug you and see you in person. So, to thank you for all you're doing. So, great day. See you very soon. I'll see you soon. (laughs) Bye, everyone. (laughs) Bye. I'm sure this conversation with Dr. Florescu is going to save so many babies. I hope that you gain information that you can use for your pregnancy and that you will tell others about it because we can only prevent stillbirth by talking about it. Remember to share this episode on social media so you can help others in your circle grow their knowledge and have a better birth outcome. Remember that all the posts that we share and our episodes are not meant to be medical advice. We are simply trying to help you and inform you as you continue your pregnancy, but always remember that you should consult your provider if you have any questions or concerns. They're there to help you and they're available to you 24 seven, even if you have to go into the hospital, the ER. Again, follow us on social media to continue up to date with our next episodes and our posts. And feel free to connect with us in the DMs. If you have any questions, we would be happy to be there for you. You are not alone. This is your community and we hope that you will continue to watch our future and past episodes to continue to add to your knowledge as we interview birth workers providers researchers and even people who have experienced different births so that when you get to your birth you'll be a little bit more informed and prepared for whatever comes your way goodbye for now